Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, I am excited to be welcoming Maya Salovitz. Maya is a neuroscience journalist obsessed with addiction, love, evidence-based living, empathy, and pretty much everything relating to the brain and its behavior. She is the author or co-author of eight books, including her New York Times bestseller, Unbroken Brain, where she uses her own story of recovery from heroin and cocaine addiction to explore how reframing addiction as a developmental disorder could revolutionize prevention, treatment, and policy. Two of her other best-selling books include The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog and Born for Love, Why Empathy is Essential and Endangered. Both were co-written with leading child psychiatrist and trauma expert, Dr. Bruce Perry. Maya is also a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times and recently released her latest book, Undoing Drugs, The Untold Story of Harm Reduction and the Future of Addiction, which is the first in its history to really look at the harm reduction movement. I am honored to have Maya join me today for this conversation, where we will be talking about such topics as tolerance, addiction, dependency, empathy, trauma, harm reduction, as well as the stigma that comes with being an addict. Listeners, before we dive into today's episode, I want to let you know about For Your Listening Pleasure's first collaboration. One of the podcast goals is to raise awareness about various nonprofits and organizations doing good in the world. I always ask each podcast guest if they are part of a particular nonprofit or if there's a specific organization that they support. I have a running list and I hope that one day I will be able to raise awareness and give to each of them. I am excited to announce my first collaboration with the Street artist wordsmith together we designed a sweatshirt that you're now able to purchase and all proceeds will be going to pause chicago and pets for vets make sure to listen to each of their mini episodes to learn more about what each organization does and where the funds will go I'm also happy to inform listeners that under the podcast umbrella, I have started my own charitable organization called For Your Charitable Pleasure to ensure that all funds now and in the future go towards organizations making a difference in the world. I'm so excited about this collaboration that I personally will be donating $2 for every Instagram repost with the hope of raising awareness around these two outstanding organizations. All you need to do is follow the podcast on Instagram, tag For Your Listening Pleasure, and include the link to purchase in the repost. Additional information, including social media usernames and purchase links, can be found in this episode's show notes. One last thing, Wordsmith, also known as Brody, I thank you for your partnership on this. You were gracious enough to respond to my email and agree to come on the podcast. Thank you for dedicating your time and talent to this collaboration, and thank you for helping support two incredibly impactful organizations. And to my loyal listeners, thank you for listening to the podcast week after week, and I I hope you enjoy this episode. So Maya, thank you so much for joining me today. For those listeners who might not know who you are, would you mind introducing yourself? Uh, sure. So I'm Maya Solovitz. I am the author of or co-author of eight books, uh, most recently, Undoing Drugs, The Untold Story of Harm Reduction and the Future of Addiction. And um I am also currently a uh, contributing opinion writer for the New York Times, and I write for lots of different places and mostly focusing on addiction, neuroscience, and drug policy. 
So Maya, I started reading your book, Undoing Drugs, a few months ago, and within the first few pages, uh, I was blown away. One, you are a recovering heroin addict, but more importantly, you start the book by talking about how a guy, like a friend of yours, girlfriend came in from out of town. He was going to get some drugs for you guys. And she talked to you about bleaching your needles. 20 some odd years later, full circle, you ended up reconnecting with Maureen Gammon. Can you talk about what that meeting in 1986 meant for not only your own recovery and being safe while you were using, but it kind of started you on this overall mission with harm reduction. Yeah. Yeah. So basically I was in my friend Dave's apartment and he had gone out to buy some drugs for us. And Maureen, who I did not know at all at the time, um, was there because she was trying to get him into rehab. And this was going to be sort of his last binge before rehab, which everybody of course has to do. Um, and so I was just, you know, sort of sitting there making small talk and somehow, well, we were obviously waiting for him to buy drugs. Um, so that was a subject that was on our minds. Um, and so she, she taught me to use bleach to clean my needles. And I hadn't even known I was at risk for HIV by injecting drugs, even though it was a known risk factor at the point, at that point, the media had really not covered it very well um, among gay men, but especially even less so among people who use drugs. So um, I was kind of shocked and she basically saved my life. Like that was um, a real turning point for me because ever since that time, during the time when I was injecting, I always used bleach or didn't share. And so my friend, unfortunately, turned out to actually be HIV positive, probably already by the time that I was kind of about to share needles with him. So it was pretty clear that she had made a huge difference for me. And it also really pissed me off because I was like, why are people telling us this? Like bleach is available everywhere. Um, you know, they just want us to die. Why do they just want us to die? And then of course it was like, well, to send a message to children that drugs are bad. And I'm like, really? Like me dying in a corner in some place in the East Village is gonna send a message to children? Like, how does that work? Um, and also like, that's a horrible way to use people. Um, so yeah, I got kind of pissed off and I slowly um, uh, began to change and, uh, you know, tried to like get that information out there. Uh, eventually got into recovery in 1988, um, sort of your more traditional abstinence um, recovery at that point. And so I then um, became a journalist and, you know, wanted to find out what the heck the deal was with the way we deal with addiction and drugs. And so that has basically been my career since. So when I was reading your other book, Unbroken Brain, which really talks about your experience, um, and your road to recovery, um, a few things popped up. One was that your dad is a Holocaust survivor and you talk about generational traits and trauma. And my mom is a child of Holocaust survivors too, and also a recovering addict. And she's given me permission to openly talk about this. So I'm very thankful, but it seems like people who look at those who suffer from addiction don't understand history or 
generational traits or trauma. And I think that was really interesting when you talked about your dad's depression and what that was like growing up and how that affected you in a way when you started using, how you were kind of always searching for something a little bit. Yeah. I mean, um, my perception of him when I was a little kid was that like nothing was ever good enough for him and I wasn't good enough and nothing I could do could ever be good enough. And I mean, I was like a straight A student. I was, you know, gifted or whatever. And, um, you know, always doing things like I was reading at three. So I kind of felt like I should kind of be impressive, you know, (laughs) Um, and I did my best, but um, I, um, I didn't realize that this was because like he couldn't, experience that much happiness at all because he was just so profoundly anhedonic he just um and so what i was perceiving as like disapproval to me or like not being good enough was really just that like he couldn't express it and he couldn't feel the joy that he actually did take in me as a kid and me just being me and my achievements you know so um so thankfully, um, you know, I was able to understand this eventually and, and we were able to, you know, he was always really supportive. Oh, um, it came and- across like that in the book, like when he had to come and bail you out and going to rehab and talking and you could tell how much he loved you and supported you. But I think that when we start to think about trauma, and I know you've written a lot about that as well, um, and when you're a young kid, you're not, you don't realize it. You don't get it. You just get that there's a void, but you don't understand it's not your fault. Yeah. I mean, kids are weird. And one of the things I actually really want to write about at some point is sort of how those weird ways we begin to understand the world and arrange our perceptions of ourselves and others, like really shapes the entire course of our lives and how parents are really, they just don't know because they can't know because it's just going on inside the kid's head. And unless the kid is incredibly articulate or, you know, for just some reason is able to express it, um, they could be having a whole lot of really wrong ideas about things and you would never know about it. And those ideas could be shaping the way they feel about themselves. And then that can lead to a lot of downstream problems. I mean, I think one of the things that's really interesting about development is how small things at the right time can have an enormous impact, whether it's positive or negative. And, you know, I mean, I think this is a terrible thing for parents to know because they're like, oh my God, I can't possibly get it right. And that's probably true, but we can all do the best we can. And obviously, um, uh, you know, most people are going to be okay. But the, um, you know, yeah, it was just, you know, I was just a kid and I just didn't really understand, you know, what was going on. Um, I know that I sort of took a lot of the stuff um, on, you know, like a lot of the fears that I have and sort of compulsiveness that I have is directly related to horrible things that happened to him. And I didn't even know it. Like, you know, I didn't even know the details of what happened until I was like in my 20s. Like, I mean, he told me that, you know, sort of the basic outlines of it, but um, he was always very vague about it. But when, um, you know, when I look at like, oh, my God, I'm like really scared of being in crowded places um, and smooshed in with people and I have to sit on the aisle and stuff like this. Oh, well, yeah, my dad was in one of those train cars with like all people smooshed in, um, dying. So yeah, I think I would get a fear of that. Do you, do you have issues throwing away food? 
not food so much, but I do have issues throwing away things in general and I have to be careful. Um, and I guess, yeah, sometimes it is food. Sometimes it would be like, I mean, I remember like milk containers used to like build up, <laughs> but I'm married now. So like that um, happens less, um, but um, you know, it's, yeah. I mean, there's just like, yeah, there's weird stuff and you know, you sort of unconsciously pick up on things. On a side note, one of the things that I loved is you talk about being obsessed when you were younger with volcanoes. And I also was obsessed. Like when how you described yourself, I was very similar. And I've never met anyone else that when they were a kid felt that like love and obsession with <laughs> volcanoes. So I was like, Yay. oh. Hello, Volcano Sister. <laughs> there's, there's another one out there. Um, when I was preparing for this interview and reading all your books and really looking at the work you've done, you've really fought to change the label of addiction and what is an addict. And I know when I was younger, you learn in health class, you know, if you smoke marijuana, you're going to end up going to jail or drugs or someone who's an addict, you know, you have this picture that is painted where now you really have to fight against that. It's a disease. It's something in your brain. It's not a choice. And I think that people look at addiction as it's a choice that someone wants to stay in that state or yeah, I mean, using. Yeah. I think what a lot of people don't understand, like it goes back to what you were talking about earlier about trauma and mental illness and despair. Um, because overwhelmingly people with addiction are not like happily going along their lives and then they meet this drug and then they're like, the hell with everything else. I'm going to be horribly selfish and, and do this. And I don't care about anything because the only thing that matters is my pleasure. And that's kind of how it's perceived. And there was a sort of whole um, propaganda machine aimed at creating that picture, a very racist one, I might add, because it focused on black people in particular, but people of color more generally. Um, and it created this, you know, it's, all in this apparatus of the war on drugs and this whole idea that like some substances are drugs and are bad and you should never do them because they're evil because they're illegal whereas other substances which are equally or more harmful are legal and they're just fine and we can celebrate having them and when you look at how that happened it's not science again it's like racism and anti-immigrant stuff so once you kind of understand where our laws come from and where our perception of who people with addiction are comes from, then you're like, wait a minute, you know, this is messed up. Um, and, you know, when you start to understand that addiction is more often about self-medicating pain than it is about, you know, I'm just happy being selfish and, and kicking other people around, you know, yeah, there are jerks among all classes of people. And there are some people with addiction who are like that. And there are also some people who don't have addiction that are like that. Um, and, you know, just sort of stereotyping us as being, you know, horrible, bad people um, really does an enormous amount of harm. And what it leads to is this ever increasing cycle of punishment where it's like, okay, these are bad people, we must punish them. And we're going to fix them by making their lives worse. But we don't understand that addiction itself is defined by compulsive behavior in the face of negative consequences. So by definition, punishment is not what's going to fix it. So we just pile on these people. Um, and then we're surprised and like, you know, try to be even worse to them when they don't get better. And it's like, why don't you ask us what's going on? You know, and I often, you know, it's so important to just listen to stories 
Um, and also to recognize like how sometimes our own stories get distorted by the lens that we are sort of forced to put them through sometimes um, because there is this sort of great culture of sin and redemption in the United States. And so, you know, sometimes people with addiction will be the worst folks about self-stereotyping. Oh, I'm a liar, I'm manipulative, I steal, blah, 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 blah. Yes, some people with addiction do that. Some people without addiction do that too. <laughs> You know, um, addiction will certainly, like many other stresses, um, uh, push you in less moral directions generally. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's inherently immoral to have an addiction or that if you have one, that means you're a bad person. And that's exactly the point. If you have one, you're not a bad person. And I watched my mom for years live with the title and like the shame that came with it and didn't want to talk about it. No one knew it was like very secretive. Um, but it's hard to really be able to heal when you feel like first you have to heal from the shame of this and then also trying to deal with your mental health. And I, you know, my fear when I think about those who are addicts or dealing with addiction is you're afraid to say, I need some help because of the label and all the negativity that kind of follows. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things that's really ridiculous is that for a long time, and, and this is unfortunately tied up with the way our treatment system is so based on 12-step programs. Like 12-step programs can be wonderfully helpful as self-help and as a chosen pathway for people to but recover. But there's, there's nothing but with mental health. No, no, no. And, and there's an enormous amount of problems. And one of them is that, you know, so there was this whole business of like, you can't get better till you say I'm Maya and I'm an addict. And like, when you actually study this, you don't have to say that you don't have to claim that label to get better. All you have to do is say, okay, um, I think I know, I think I'd like to change my behavior. You know, you don't have to take that label. In fact, taking that label has nothing to do with whether or not you recover and it may make it worse. So um, it's not, you know, so when you actually study these things that like, you know, that that, that organization discovered anecdotally over many years, some of them are true and some of them are not. And some of them are true for some people and some of them are, are true for others. But it's just what's really harmful is that, you know, that whole model teaches us addiction is a disease and the treatment is confession, prayer, and amends. And that is not teaching us that it's a disease. That is saying this is the only moral condition in medicine. And like, until you're going to make people with schizophrenia and people with depression and people with OCD take moral inventory, which I don't think we should be doing, um, uh, then I don't think we should be doing this for people with addiction. That said, all human beings could probably benefit from taking moral inventory and making amends for the harm they've done. So it's complicated. But bottom line, um, you know, we should not have this in medicine. Like we should make it separate just the way we do for other aspects of medicine where, you know, if you are in treatment for um, cancer, yes. um, you get a support group and they don't prescribe your chemo. They support you. <laughs> also, if you have cancer, my cancer and your cancer could be technically the same kind, but the treatment plan can be completely different based off what our individual needs are. And I've had Holly Whitaker on the podcast who wrote Quit Like a Woman, who really examined female culture with drinking culture. 
and, you know, living with a parent who's in recovery, I also lost one of my closest friends to a heroin overdose. And I think to myself, they're all different. They're all in different places in their lives. They're all different mentally, physically, all that. But yet the treatment for addiction is the same 12 and steps. And unless you really have the means, and even if you do have the means to go to a different recovery, that's really what it's, we as a society deem the way to be cured, which yeah. isn't it, yeah, fair. It, yeah. It's, it's completely messed up. And, and, you know, one of my best arguments on this, I believe is partially one that is financial. Why are we paying for enormously expensive care that is teaching people what they can get for free in a church basement, whereas we don't have access to other equally or more effective cognitive motivational treatments um, that you can't get for free. Like, why do we pay for something you can get for free? It's dumb. Besides that, it's also harmful because as I said earlier, making this into the only thing in medicine that's moral increases the shame and increases the humiliation and is not helpful in that way. You know, and it's it's so hard to be heard as a nuanced person in this country these days because, you know, everybody's like, oh, Maya hates the 12 steps. No, Maya does not hate the 12 steps. Maya just wants them separate from treatment. Um, and that like, they can be wonderful for people again, who choose. And my favorite 12 step saying is, um, you know, take what you like and leave the rest. Um, and, you know, there can be some wonderful, beautiful healing um, and stuff. But again, like, you know, if you put anybody, if you put any kind of condition and say there's this one true way for it, unless you have, you know, serious, 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 multiple thousands of people studied, and this is the one thing that works, I don't want you saying that because that is not true for this. Also, I think that with AA, um, you don't examine the mental health aspect and one of your co-authors, Dr. Bruce Perry, came out the book with the book, What Happened to You? And reading that changed how I look at everyone. So whether it's a bad interaction at a grocery store, it's like, well, what happened? Like, why are you acting like this? Or when you see someone who's suffering with addiction, well, what happened where you felt the need to self-medicate or to escape or whatever it is? Instead of going, well, what's wrong with you? You're already putting it on the defense. Whereas when you, I think, look at asking questions from an empathetic point of view and leading that way, you're able to get a little bit deeper. And one thing with AA, I believe, is they don't believe in taking medication that you might need sometimes. Yeah, yeah. What's interesting about that is that like AA is actually way better on that than NA. And I always tell people who have opioid addiction, if they like the 12 steps and want to engage in that, go to AA rather than NA because most people have multiple problems anyway. It's polydrug. But also because um, NA has unfortunately this explicit policy that you are not clean, which is another word I hate, um, but that you're not really in recovery if you are on methadone or buprenorphine. And I believe that comes from a fundamental misunderstanding between the, the 
of the distinction between addiction and dependence because addiction is compulsively using something despite negative consequences. Dependence is needing something to function. Needing something to function, we all need lots of things to function. And that's not necessarily a problem as long as the benefits outweigh the risks. Um, and so that's why if you're on medication, you may still have physical dependence, but you're not addicted in the sense of you're compulsively using, which is the problem. So you, if you've solved the problem, you shouldn't be still considered actively addicted. It is not good. Anyway, the thing is, AA explicitly has a pamphlet that says something along the lines of, we are not doctors. And if you have been honest with your doctor about what medication you're on, it is no business of any of us. And so that has, during the course of the time that I have, um, you know, I do not go to meetings anymore, but back in the day when I did, even then in the eighties and, and nineties, it was becoming, you know, half the people were on Prozac anyway. <laughs> So, um, you know, but that harsh anti-medication, the, the pamphlet actually says people have killed themselves because AA members told them to stop taking their psych meds and that is bad, we are not doctors. And so, um, you know, again, there still will exist, you know, because it's a grassroots organization without top-down control, there certainly still exist um, groups within AA itself that are anti-medication, but for the most part, they are a lot better. And even within NA, there are people who are throwing away the old nonsense, but since it's official policy of the national organization, it's gonna be hard to find that. One of my goals with this podcast is I hope that people do learn and understand addiction um, in a different way and look at it in a different light. And sometimes I'll overhear people talking about it and I go, you smoke cigarettes, you drink coffee every day, you drink alcohol all the time. Um, those are addictions. You don't, we just don't call them that because for some reason we've, you know, picked out certain ones and say, these are bad while those are acceptable. And really when you look at the behavior and the behavioral's the same, it just is whatever yeah. I mean, well, it is. I could say also that most people who use most drugs, yes. including alcohol, um, tobacco is an interesting exception, but let's bracket that. Um, like most people who use alcohol, most people even who use opioids or heroin um, or cocaine are not addicted. Um, and most people who smoke pot certainly are not addicted. Addiction, again, compulsive use despite negative consequences. Most of the people are just like using it, um, you know, to have fun or whatever, and they don't have a problem. Um, but, you know, the thing is, caffeine is a really interesting drug for this because it does cause significant physical dependence. Um, and many people, if they, for some reason, go without their customary morning coffee, they will have a headache and they will not necessarily realize, oh, I'm in withdrawal, <laughs> but that is indeed what is happening. And so, um, you know, uh, we all like make jokes about, oh my God, I got to get to Starbucks or whatever. Um, ideally an indie, but um, the, um, my favorite coffee shop. But anyway, um, the, um, you know, yeah, it, it's exactly. And why are the drugs that are legal legal? Because white male colonialists were able to make money from them at a specific time in history. And now we have the ridiculous drug laws that say for all the rest of human history, these are the only things you can have for recreational use, which is really dumb when you think about it that way. Yeah, I think we could have like a whole separate episode talking about like how racism plays out within the drug and alcohol culture, because there's a thousand different ways to look at it. And it's so prevalent and even talk about drugs in our prison systems and it kind of keeps going. But for uh, this episode, I really did want to talk more about harm reduction and 
what it looks like in the United States versus in Europe. Cause your book really does talk about that in Liverpool and how we, um, seems like it's a theme we're slow to react when it came to harm reduction and understanding that with needles passing HIV, but you know, other countries, uh, were way ahead of it, as well as giving prescriptions to help those with addictions kind of continue living normally. We, I could never see the United States writing a prescription for heroin use for someone to continue. It, it's interesting though, because, um, you know, um, sadly, the UK has really regressed since, um, since back in the day with Liverpool, like there's still a few prescribers hanging on and they're still, you know, they haven't cut their syringe exchanges or anything, but um, the conservative government there sort of went on this whole recovery agenda where it was like, that was meaning abstinence. And they, they also had austerity. So they cut their treatment system terribly. And just today, the Labour Party was doing this stupid attack on the Liberal Democrats saying like, oh, look, Liberal Democrats want to legalize drugs. Now, the Liberal Democrats were actually saying they want to decriminalize, which any sane person would want to do since there's no evidence that locking people up for possession does anything good. And there's lots of evidence that does harm. Anyway, the point here is that, um, yes, in the 80s and 90s, they were way ahead of us. Um, And but in the good news, we, you know, Joe Biden put harm reduction in his State of the Union speech, and he put it at the center of his um, newly announced um, drug strategy. Now, he also added a lot of funding for the DEA, but we're slowly making progress. And in fact, you know, um, 10, 15 years ago, you it would have blown my mind to know that this could happen because at that time, you literally, if you wanted to get a grant from the government, you could not say the phrase harm reduction, even if what you were actually doing was getting a grant for studying needle exchange. So, um, you know, but so it's, I think the thing, um, and the reason I wanted to write about harm reduction is that it is a dangerous idea to the idea of prohibition because it says there's something more important than stopping the use of drugs. And that's stopping human beings from getting harmed. Um, and harm reduction policies are basically anything that focuses first on stopping harm, not stopping highs. So once you sort of see that, the moral calculus flips because, you know, I don't care if you get euphoria. I don't care if you get unearned euphoria. I might be a little annoyed that you're having more fun than me, but like, really, that's not my business, especially if I'm the government, uh, right? So, but um, if you're getting hurt, that should be all of our concern. And that's where, you know, harm reduction comes in and where it says, wait a minute, like, you know, dead people can't recover. Um, and not only are you getting hurt, but you can also be hurting others without knowing it. And I think that the last two years, like wear a mask, it's a form of harm reduction. Exactly. And it's so simple, but people are like, you're taking away my right or whatever, I don't really want to go down that path, but whatever that is. But when you're thinking about, we didn't know about HIV, we didn't understand necessarily how it was getting passed. And we very much said, oh, it's a, you know, a gay man's disease. And it quickly became that. But what I thought was interesting in your book is addicts, whether they were straight or gay or anything that got HIV were treated horrifically, horrifically, especially you talked about in the New York uh, prisons. And I was just 
as a person, I don't understand how we can look at somebody else and treat them that way. No, I mean, what was especially horrific and, and, um, you know, like I wanted to highlight the work of these activists um, who went into Rikers and um, the people who were actually in Rikers as inmates who organized and did a hunger strike because like it was absolutely horrific the way people who were dying of AIDS, who by the way, Rikers is a jail. So that means most of them were not convicted of anything. They were just too poor to afford bail. Um, and they're dying, you know, wearing like paper sheets and being, you know, shunned by everybody and not getting appropriate food or medical care or anything. Um, and so they had this a series of hunger strikes and they actually did get an AIDS ward there that was a lot better. And they also got a lot of people freed, which was good. We're still having horrible problems with Rikers. Thankfully, the population in there is a lot smaller, but people are still dying and it's still really screwed up. Um, but yeah, like that activism and the names of those activists, like, you know, nobody knew this. Like I didn't, when I first started researching it, I didn't even know about that. Like I knew the people that had been organizing it, but I didn't know the people inside. Um, and, you know, it's just, um, it's just, I wanted to bring out this history to show that, you know, just like other people who are oppressed, people with addiction and people who use drugs, can organize and can make a difference. And, you know, you mentioned um, harm reduction for COVID. Um, and when the pandemic started, like that became, it really got into the mainstream, the whole idea, because people were like, look, nobody's going to abstain forever from socializing. That's an unrealistic expectation. What can we do? Okay, we can wear, we can wear masks, right? Um, and that's harm reduction. And people sort of began to understand it like that. And that is a gift from people who use drugs to the entire world, that concept and that way of thinking. Um, you know, there's always been like going back to Hippocrates, first do no harm. There's always been sort of an idea that harm should be avoided if possible. But what harm reduction does is it says, it brings us a fundamental acceptance of the fact that people are gonna take risks that we don't necessarily want them to take. And that if we want to preserve life and health first, we need to, reduce the risks that um, and reduce the harm associated with those behaviors rather than trying to increase the harm associated with them by doing things like locking people up or um, you know illegalizing things so that you end up with a supply that's full of poison. Um, you know if we actually you know I don't think most people think you should get the death penalty for trying an illegal substance. Um, you know, um, they certainly don't think that as soon as it comes down to being their kid. Um, and so, you know, we have to think about this from a different perspective and harm reduction brings us that perspective. It says, okay, what's more valuable is keeping people healthy and alive. And if we can do that, most likely they're going to get through. If we don't do that, they're going to die and it's not going to serve as an example to anybody anyway. Well, so one thing listeners in the book on doing drugs, I learned so much and I've always kind of been fascinated and been a big advocate of talking about addiction and understanding it so that I could help others. But that book shined a completely different light on um, both addiction as well, learning what harm reduction looked like and was. And I was shocked with some of the treatment that we were doing to our like fellow 
humans, citizens, less than 15, 20 years ago. It's just That's still going on. And it's still going on. And I just, in my mind, I'm like, where we are at in today's society and like how advanced we are, how has understanding addiction and drugs not advanced? We, if anything, I feel like we're sometimes taking steps back. I mean, yeah, the, um, the thing there is that, um, because addiction is criminalized and stigmatized, um, it has, we've created a system that's outside the medical system for the most part. And it is an unscientific system. It is not a system that learns because although medicine is slow about learning, it does learn. Um, and if a study comes out and says, you know, this operation doesn't work, it may take three or four years before they stop doing it, but they will stop doing it. Um, so the um, with the addictions field, though, that is not the case because it has been, you know, I mean, when the medical field said, okay, we're not dealing with this, especially because if we prescribe to these people, we can go to jail. Um, we're not dealing with this. And so a whole group of people often with addictions themselves came in and said, this is the way to do it. And I know the answer and my answer works and just refused to look at evidence showing otherwise um, because they were just not in that scientific you know, medical mind frame. And so, you know, the system, I mean, I was like, I was just writing a story for the times that is coming out um, tomorrow. And I was, I'd interviewed somebody who'd been into one of these abusive places where, um, you know, they scream at you and the whole idea is to break you down. And when I read that, I was like, what the fuck is going on in our country that we send people who clearly are broken to places for abuse? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the whole troubled teen thing is another one of my books where there's a whole industry devoted to this, unfortunately, but we are making progress on that. Like there's supposed to be um, uh, some congressional action next week, I think, hopefully, but um, I need to find out more about whether it is actually good. <laughs> but anyway, so the, I have a question about that. Yeah. I remember growing up, like there was a few people who got like taken in the middle of the night to some outdoor thing. And it, I think it made them worse, to be honest. But you always hear about hitting rock bottom. And I don't like that term. I don't think it's a good way to look at things. Um, can you talk about that? Why are Sure. So I mean, always looking at and be like, oh, they haven't hit rock bottom yet. Yeah. Well, I mean, and and yeah, those wilderness places often do make people worse. Um, and I never thought I'd be saying this, but Paris Hilton has been an enormous positive force in this because she went to one of these places. She real like her producer of her documentary, like got her to realize that this was a severe source of trauma for her. And she, to her credit, has gone out there and um, been a real activist on this. And this is why there um, is legislation that is going to be considered. And she's uh, a person of privilege. So absolutely. just put that in perspective. Well, so and that's like when there, can you imagine what people who don't have those funds well, God forbid, get? Yeah, but what, what's really weird, though, is that some of the worst places are for the rich kids. This is one of these weird incidents. And one of like I wrote this book, Help at Any Cost, that's about this. Um, and one of the things that I found that was really strange was there were no before Paris Hilton um, and before some of the survivor groups started forming online that she is now working with. Um, 
there was very little activism against these programs, which had thousands of people in them. But basically, because it was middle class white kids, there was a gap in the advocacy or middle or upper class, because um, basically the advocates for children were quite rightly focused on poor kids and the advocates around, you know, political abuse of people in um, psychiatric or mental institutions was about adults. Um, and so this area of advocacy, like I'm still the world's experts on this, which is weird. Um, but the, um, you know, cause nobody took it up. Um, you know, now there's more people, thankfully. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, like um, that whole thing comes out of this cult called Synanon that was um, introduced um, in the fifties. It was founded by a guy who was like a failed stand-up comic and an AA member. And he decided that AA isn't tough enough. And that like, if we're going to um, get people into recovery, the thing we have to do is confront and humiliate. We don't need to have people find humility. We need to like humiliate them. They don't need, you know, to make them discover they're powerless. We're going to impose power on them. We're going to force them to confess. We're going to, you know, just break their personalities and reform them as good social people somehow. Um, so anyway, um, you know, that was the basis of every 18 month long rehab in the United States until probably the late 90s at maybe even the 2000s. I, when I was um, working on this piece that I was mentioning before, um, there was a um, there's a person I interviewed um, who was in one of these places in 2001. And, you know, yeah, it was the classic thing. You're on the hot seat. People are screaming at you and they're trying to say the most hurtful things possible in order to break you down. The other kind of things they use, you would have to sit and look in a mirror for hours. Like if you looked away, um, then you got more time. So it's very hard. You can't, it's hard to stare at anything for a little, but you know, you're supposed to look at yourself, of course, just like, you know, all this stupid pop psychology stuff. But anyway, the, um, yeah, abusive treatment has been a cornerstone of American addiction treatment for much of its history. Um, and it has been that way, um, I argue, in large part because this is a criminalized, stigmatized population and we have this idea that hitting bottom is going to help. And the problem with hitting bottom that people don't seem to be able to get through their heads is that it is a narrative device, not a scientific one. So basically, um, let's say I hit bottom and I go to treatment. Now I relapse three weeks later, now I have a new bottom. Now I am in recovery for four or five years without any relapses. And then I relapse. Now I have a new bottom. Like it's a dumb concept. It doesn't make any sense. Right. And I mean, even even back in the day, like in the 30s, AA recognized this. So they had high bottom and low bottom people. Right. And this is like in the 12 step literature. But it's just a ridiculous idea. The bottom line, ha ha ha, is <laughs> that um, change is a process. Some people will recover when they, you know, break their fingernail and, oh my God, that's because I was drinking. Um, other people will not recover even if they're homeless and have lost everything. And if we take the concept of bottom seriously, we have to think that if you just make it as bad as possible for people, that makes them more likely to get better. And I always ask people and they say this, okay, who do you think is more likely to get better? The doctor? Um, who still has his practice and has a family and kids and lots of money and a good career or the homeless guy. Now, come on, it's going to be the doctor, right? You know, <laughs> it is not the case that, um, uh, you know, you are more likely to recover the less resources you have. 
Well, I also find it interesting that they think going away for 20 days, 30 days, and you're going to be so much better when, when you think about how long it takes to make or break a habit, it's at least a hundred days and it's repetition and making sure that, you know, you're setting yourself up for success, but to go away for 30 days, you're not at home. So you're not making good habits like to continue. You're in a very structured place where you're doing certain things at certain times that you have to do. And then you come out 20 days, 30 days later, and you, you're, you're not able, and then you go right back home or you go back right, you know, to a halfway house or wherever you're going, you kind of have to start again with creating new rituals or routines right. while still trying to stay sober or dealing with your kids or whatever it is. So and if you think like, you know, all of psychiatry in general has turned away from residential settings in part because by their own nature, without even adding abuse helps people, which is the mantra of some of these addiction places. But without even that, anytime you have an institution where there are vulnerable people who are cut off from contact with the outside world um, and others who have control over them, by very nature, you will have abuse if you don't have severely strong safeguards, which these places don't. So ideal, the best care for most people is in the community. Now, if you're living with a drug dealer in a neighborhood with drug sales on every corner, you're probably going to want to live somewhere else. So and we may have to help facilitate that in terms of like safer housing for you somewhere else. But the housing and the treatment do not have to be the same thing, because in the vast majority of cases, if you have a treatment program that is like, you know, a, a sort of regimented structured thing, you're going to have to be giving all the people pretty much the same thing. Like maybe you can have a couple of different tracks or whatever, but people are really varied in their needs. And somebody, you know, somebody may need, um, you know, antidepressants and cognitive therapy. Somebody else may need a GED, antidepressants, cognitive therapy, a house, um, you know, um, uh, trauma therapy. Um, so it's really, um, standardizing it is bad. And if you separate the housing from the care, you can just get people to different places so they can get what they need rather than sending them away somewhere and expecting them to come home fixed. I mean, with most chronic diseases, we recognize that care in the community makes much more sense. Um, and in order, you know, it may be the case for some people that they need a break and they should be away for a couple of weeks. And there's nothing wrong with that. Or if it's a like abusive environment or certain things where it's it's not a good idea for you to try to do this where you currently are. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think that right, like in order to really have good treatment, um, it needs to be flexible. Um, you shouldn't have to live there so that we don't have that. You know, I mean, most of what they're charging you for is that residential part. Um, you know, because if you look at look at like sort of what happens in those 28 days, most of the time you're going to the equivalent of 12 step meeting. You may be in a therapy group and the leader may have a, you know, a counseling degree. Um, but what are you talking about? Okay. Did you work your first step? Are you power? You know, like the content is based on that rather than being, um, you know, sort of more professionalized. Um, and then, you know, but most of the, or you're watching films or lectures or something like this, like most of that content is not really essential to you have to live there for it. Um, and a lot of that content is wasting time. 
Um, so, and you're still paying, you know, 30 to $60,000 a month for it. Better to do, you know, if you have that money, let's say your insurance is willing to pay that money. How about you actually get to see a psychiatrist for X number of hours and you actually get to see a PhD therapist for, you know, you can get a lot of real treatment for that money if you're not like spending it all essentially on this residential package that has stuff that you don't need and stuff like yoga and all, you know, when you look at, don't get me wrong. I practice yoga for 15 (laughs) years. I love it there's something about meditation, but when you're looking at where to go and they're like, oh, we have this and that, and it's like activities, but you're paying $50,000 for 30 days, maybe go first to really people who can dive in deeper, get to the root cause and work together. I I would argue that there is some benefit to just having really nice spa-like thing for a couple of weeks. Oh yeah. I mean, (laughs) you know, um, uh, if it actually is that, and it's not like we say we have that, but really what you're getting is screamed at, which there is a lot of, Um, but, um, but yeah, like, um, no, what people need to recover is alternative sources of pleasure and meaning. Um, and if you can show people that it's not going to suck, um, you can really <laughs> attract them into recovery a lot better. Well, I thought your story was just so interesting because you were, you are so smart and it comes across that in your book, how much you got done before even entering college and you were at Columbia. Uh, I thought it was interesting. The first time you ever did like hard drugs was with Jerry Garcia, which I mean, <laughs> I, that I was like, wow, like that already elevates you. Like some stories there that was impressive, but then obviously it goes downhill for a little bit, but, um, you really wanted to go back to school, but you could not go back to school when you were under, you know, still having this addiction and you had some legal issues. I really encourage listeners to read on unbroken brain because it was really fascinating. But when you talk about wanting to recover for something, you knew you were destined to do more. You wanted to be a journalist. You wanted to really talk and um, showcase what you were doing. And I know you got like your first job with Charlie Rose, Yes, yes. I mean, which I was, which I was like, wow, like you're, you know, I would that, I mean, that talk was a, to you for really hours. Bizarre. That was a really bizarre thing because yeah. I, like I was just um, at that point, I was freelancing, and I had written for I'd written some stuff for The Voice, um, and which was The Village Voice, which was a big um, alternate paper at that time. Um, and I was, um, you know, but you, it was really it was there was an, there was a recession in the early '90s, and it was really it's always hard to support yourself as a freelancer in New York, but that was an especially hard time. So I looked in the Village Voice, and there was this ad. This is before the internet, um, or before the inter- I was already on the internet, but before it sort of took over. Um, the um, there was an ad for a host of a television show, and like. I had done television in high school, but anyway, something, I had this intuition, you should apply for this. So um, it was supposed to be funky downtown, whatever. So I applied for this and I got interviewed by the producers and they really liked me. 
Um, but then they decided to do a totally different thing and hire Charlie Rose. And then they called me and said, like, would you like to be a producer? And I had like zero experience except for that, you know, four years of high school doing my little cable show. Um, but, um, I guess I impressed them with, um, my intelligence and my, um, your essay also about being so open about your addiction, right? Yeah. yeah. Which- and they were, yeah. I mean, and, and the, right. Cause my clips, I, yeah, I'm a former IV drug user. Please hire me. <laughs> but, but I uh, mean, I think it's really interesting. One, you've always been really honest about your experience. And two, when you talk about staying in recovery and you need to have something to look forward to or work towards when I was like, wow, this makes sense. Why you were able to, you know, be an addict and be a using addict for so long. And then when you started to feel good and feel that like worth or whatever you were looking for in the drugs outside of it, that you just started to like go pretty much. Yeah. I mean, it was, um, you know, and I, it, it took a while because also like I had to eventually find my way onto medication for depression, which I have suffered from for a long time. Um, but the meds work. Yay. And you also um, realized you were on the spectrum too. Yes. Which was a huge thing. Which, and that, yeah. yeah. And that like, because I mean, that really helped me to real, cause like, I'm really quite quirky, as you may have guessed. I love it. Um, I love it, though. <laughs> um, but um, but yeah, like it made sense of like all of the different things, the, the, all of the different ways I, in which I was weird. And that was so such a relief because it's like, oh, I'm not a bad person because I have so much difficulty socializing and I'm not a selfish person because like I get overwhelmed by things and have to withdraw. Um, and, you know, all of these things that I just interpreted in such a negative way, I was able to be like, oh, okay, that's what that is. Okay. Like I still need to sometimes do stuff to mitigate that where it is like harmful to others, but. Um, but the pieces in the puzzle start to fit together that allowed you to truly understand who you were. And then you were able to really shine. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, um, it, it has certainly taken a while, but the, um, it, you know, it was really, um, and I also just feel like I was lucky. I was privileged. There was a lot of things that, that went my way that didn't necessarily have to go my way. Um, and part of the reason that I do what I do is because, um, I just saw how messed up the system is and especially to poor people and people of color. And I was like, everybody should be able to have the opportunities that I had because it's not right. Um, you know, especially when it came to the criminal prosecution system, um, and I'm still, you know, I, I just still try to emphasize that because it's just horrible. Um, and I feel like, you know, one of the ways in which I was lucky was that like, because I'd had, you know, I was at Columbia, I was able to demonstrate that I had capability. Whereas like people who didn't have that would not be able to show that as quickly. Um, and so, you know, it's, I just, I'm always torn by how many people we throw away for no reason and how you know our jails and our streets and our prisons are filled with people who have enormous stuff to give um and we don't look at that way we just like oh they're a waste of life whatever no talk to them you know yes a lot of people do have severe mental illness and addictions but when you can talk to that person you'll find out what happened to them and also what they have that, you know, that can benefit all of us. And, and I just feel like it is such a waste. And this is again, why I love harm reduction, because what it does is it tells people who are living in the worst circumstances, 
you are valued. We value you, even if you continue to use drugs, even if you are exactly where you are, we love you anyway. And we're gonna welcome you and try to get you resources so that you can you know, um, get better. And that to me is amazing and, and wonderful. And I truly admire everybody who's out there doing that work every day. I think that's a perfect way to end this episode. Maya, I could talk to you for hours. I hope you come back on and we continue the conversation because I think there's so many aspects that are so important to really dive in and you're such an expert um, and have done so much to raise awareness. So thank you. I end every episode with the same three questions. The first question is, if you had a quote or a mantra that you live by, what would it be? And I guess, you know, I was thinking about this a little bit before. Um, first, do no harm is really good. I like that. Um, you know, um, just try to, you know, uh, value um, people and and don't harm them. <laughs> I mean, it's very simple, but it's, it's very complicated at the same time. It definitely is. Um, the second question is, if you could relive any one day, which day would you pick? And this is an interesting one. So I would relive my wedding because it was wonderful. <laughs> it actually, you know, like everybody's, oh, it's the best day or whatever. Like it actually was perfect. So, you know, and I, I kind of wasn't as there as I could have been. So um, there you go. <laughs> no, I love it. We've had a few guests have said that because they just want to relive it so they can be more in the moment or relive it because it was just so wonderful. So it's yeah, well, it was funny because like um my husband and I did this dance um where it was like a Charleston and we had rehearsed it and everything like that. So I spent a lot of time being terrified I was gonna screw that up. So I would like to have that out of and it actually was of course lovely. Um, but um you know anyway um, I love that. No, it's beautiful. The last question is if you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room, which song would you choose? Now, this was extremely hard, so I couldn't pick just one. But um, what I used for my wedding, actually, um, Beethoven's Ode to Joy from the Ninth Symphony is like I've always loved. It's joyous. Um, uh, Grateful Dead, um, lots of different Grateful Dead. I will pick the 11 for this particular uh, assignment. Um, Miles Davis, pretty much everything. <laughs> Um, you know, there's, I mean, it's just like, I love music so much and I've actually just been, um, taking singing lessons, um, which, you know, I'm not good or anything, but I'm having fun. Um, so it's just been, um, you know, it, I really wanted to speak that language and I'm beginning to, so of course, so now it's just like, I like this. Oh, I love this. This is great. You know? And yes, there's some music that sucks also, but uh, <laughs> we don't have to go into that now. <laughs> so I'll go ahead and add uh, the Ode to Joy and then the Grateful Dead song to the For Your Listening Pleasure Spotify playlist. So okay. listeners can listen to those two theme songs for you and all the other guests theme songs, which the playlist is really starting to shape up into this like very unique uh, just listening that was really variable experience but I think that it's really explains what this podcast is about so yeah well, right. Maya, thank you so much I appreciate this so like I was so excited to talk to you so thank you thank you this is lovely and um yes please do stay in touch